Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hi everyone, thank you so much for being such a loyal audience. Today I have two things to talk about very briefly. The first one is that I have created a page on Facebook. It's called Understand Suicide, the same name as the podcast, because I do miss interacting with you. So you can talk to me directly there or even among yourselves, but I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear ideas, topics, maybe questions that you might have and I could explore here. So just help me do this together. The second thing is that on my webpage now, understandsuicide.com, you have a donate option, so you could donate to the podcast. It could really help me because it takes at least 8 to 10 hours for me to finish each of these episodes. It's a lot of work. I have to come up with the ideas for the themes and topics I want to cover, find someone to interview, you know, get in touch with them. Sometimes it takes months to get someone to say, yes, let's do it. And the editing and all of that costs. So if you find that this is helpful for you, I would appreciate your help. Thank you. Hello, welcome to my podcast and my YouTube channel. Today I have the first Brazilian ever to be on my podcast. <laughs> Asli <an> Carvalho. <laughs> I'm finally talking to someone from my country. I've been searching for someone, but I really wanted this guest to be special and I finally got it. So oh, let, me just, let me just give a little bit of information about you. She's a Brazilian-American clinical psychologist. She specialized in trauma, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And she is an EMDR, Institute Trainer of Trainers. We will talk about that later and explain what it is. With her team, she has trained more than, what, 3,000 therapists in Brazil? 3,000 therapists in Brazil, yeah in the last 15 years, and she's the founder and clinical director of the Trauma Clinic in Brasilia. And for those who don't know, Brasilia is the capital of Brazil. I know a lot of people think it's real, but it's not. But it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Used to be, though, so they're not totally wrong. Used yeah. to be until God knows when. <laughs> so, Asley, thank you so much for being here with us. My pleasure. Sharing your <laughs> knowledge with us. Let's start with the word trauma, because trauma, we have this general understanding that trauma is physical trauma. When we talk about it, people always think of sexual abuse. They think of uh, physical violence. And that's not what it is only, is it? So can you please explain to us what trauma is? Well, I think there's um, many aspects to it. One is it's something unexpected that happened to us. Usually traumas are something that happened to us and catch us by surprise. I wasn't expecting the car to, you know, to uh, slam into mine. 
Uh, I wasn't expecting the person to have that kind of an attitude. And it can be real, like as in a rape or, or um, an accident. And it can also be real as in perceived. You know, I thought I was going to get killed or I thought it could be dangerous. It wasn't as dangerous as I thought, but I, I perceived it as being it. So it can be mm -hmm. real or perceived. And many times we talk about these things that break into our reality, something that we really did not expect, that our mind cannot wrap itself around, that has happened to us, and that winds up taking up um, space in our, in our neurons in a way that's very different than in a physical arm breaking or something like that. And so we need to be able to understand how these things can affect us. And traumas are not just those big traumas that everybody agrees. Oh, she was kidnapped. Oh, she was mugged. She was raped. Uh, she almost died in the car accident. She was in an earthquake. Everybody thinks, oh, wow, those are traumatic experiences. But one of the things that we have seen, especially with the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study by Felitti and his um, colleagues, is that experiences, adverse experiences in our childhood will give us an idea of how many physical illnesses we will have in our adult life. There's a direct link. They did a study with 17,000 people. And so they asked like um, 10 different categories of questions. Like, did your parents ever se separate, not even divorce, separate once between the ages of zero and 18? No. Did you feel that you didn't have enough care or uh, that you were neglected or that you didn't have enough to eat or that you had to go to school with dirty clothing? You know, people don't think of those things as necessarily be being traumatic, mm -hmm. but these are the adverse experiences. And obviously, if somebody, you know, commits suicide or has a depression, alcoholism, drug abuse, all of those things, they also ask. And so all of a sudden, we have a study that shows us that these experiences, even this, what we call, you know, light traumas, you know, little things, mm -hmm. as they build up, they can also inflict many of, much of the damage that we also see with these one-time experiences that really, you know, break into our reality. Mm -hmm. So many people often think, well, I don't know if I can do this kind of treatment for trauma. I can't think of any traumas that I've ever had. But when you start asking the questions, surgeries are traumatic. You know, the body does not like to be opened. You know, it was something no, that I saw in one of my books. Yeah. It, does, it just doesn't like this thing. We have to do it. We have to do it. But it doesn't like it. Treatment, how much, you know, like cancer treatments and, other, you know, infertility treatments. How traumatic are some of these things? How difficult they are? You know, every month you're hoping that to get pregnant and you don't. You know, the disappointments mm -hmm. and the treatments themselves can be very painful. Mm -hmm. um, so we see that there's a large range of definitions, you know, of what we can consider as being traumatic. But something that really breaks into our reality unexpectedly and makes us think, wow, something very different is happening in my life that I did not expect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That was very simple, very simple language. And sometimes it's hard to find that. But, you know, you mentioned surgery and what came to mind was uh, Van der Kolk's uh, book, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember, but he does mention a story, one of the cases that he saw of this woman who woke up during the surgery. And of course, she felt the pain. But then 
they gave us some more anesthetic and she was okay again. But just by waking up and feeling and, and acknowledging where he was, she was, the body interpreted as trauma. And for many, many years, she didn't know that that's what caused the trauma. She was having all kinds of physical, mental health issues, and they traced it back to that experience. You know, I have a friend, a friend who had an experience like that. She, um, whenever she would go to a place where they had a bright light, if she sat under the bright light, she would immediately get a migraine. And it was so notorious in her family that even her kids would say, Mommy, don't sit down there because you're going to get a headache. And she'd done all the exams and the tests and the medication. Nothing worked. And one day she decided to do an EMDR therapy session because she had had a recent surgery where things had been kind of complicated. And I had talked to her about this. And sometimes the brain will go back and it will kind of, fish out other memories that are connected in the same file. Mm -hmm. And 15 years before, she had had a surgery where she had almost died. It was a life mm -hmm. and death sort of thing, very difficult recovery. And all of a sudden, in the middle of these, this processing, she recovers the memory of having woken up in the middle of surgery. Now, she did not have physical pain, but she had this horrible, well, pain when she opened her eyes. And mm -hmm. there was, there were the bright lights of the surgery room. Wow. You know, and the nausea of the anesthesia and the whole thing. She says, you know, I can tell you where all of the doctors were. And I said something and they just kind of elbowed each other. And the anesthesiologist put me under again. And of course, with the recovery was so you know, difficult. My life was kind of like touch and go for a while. Obviously, nobody was going to remind me that I had woken up. I totally forgot this memory. So we reprocessed this with a new therapy called EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. She never had a migraine again. It's gone. Wow. Wow. So how many of the physical symptoms that we deal with every day in our lives have to do with experiences that we are not aware of? They're out of our mm -hmm. consciousness, out of our awareness, out of our memory many times, but they, have, they continue to have an impact. And that's why I think treating trauma is such, such a fundamental and uh, important thing. Because these are the things that make us physically sick, emotionally sick. You know, our hearts, mm -hmm. our emotional hearts, our physical hearts. Um, why do we have so much illness? You know, how, many, how much of these experiences in our childhood are impacting our adult life? So mm -hmm. it's a very interesting case. Yeah, yeah and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's my second question to you. Can you explain to us, I mean, why? You just said, why do we have all these physical illnesses? I mean, how does that happen? What is the impact of trauma on your brain, your body? I don't want to separate it because we know there's no separation. No, well, yeah, but how does it impact your body and your mental health? It's, that's, you know, that's very interesting. I have... Um, I, have a I had a patient many years ago when I first began um, seeing clients who, had, who was born with a congenital hole in her heart, you know, we mm -hmm. could say, and the doctors had told her she came out of a lot of poverty. And the doctors had told her, you cannot have children until you've had this surgery, and you need to have this surgery to stay alive. It's a very, very serious situation. And she kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And finally, she, she got married, and she decided she really wanted to have kids. And so she came in, and I prepared her to go to surgery. Now, back then, it was going to be open-heart surgery, you know, the, the really, you know, traumatic kind, where they yeah. saw you open and everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they stop the heart, they sew it up, the blood goes on the outside of your body while you're having surgery. 
and then mm -hmm. they sew up, up your heart and they put it back in, put it, you know, sew it back together and they give you shocks to make the heart start beating again. So it's, it's, it's pretty serious. Wow, that's, that's trauma right there, right? Right there. So after the surgery, three or four months later, when she'd recovered some, she comes in and she says, I'm going to die. 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 What do you mean you're going to die? He says, what did the doctor say? The doctor said, the doctor say, I'm fine now. He says, well, what did they find? He says, they said that I could have dropped dead any minute. The hole was much bigger and much worse than they had ever imagined. Okay, so now you're safe. And she looked at me and said, huh? <laughs> like, safe? You know, I'm in danger. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. He says, what do you mean you're going to die? The doctors mm. say that you're okay. And I started putting this thing together. And this was before I was an EMDR therapist. And that's, but she was the one who gave me the, the, the first clue. It says, you know, the body does not like to be opened. And it was like her body did not believe that she could die as long as it was functioning. And even with a big hole and all the effort of pumping Because blood it was through, adapted to the big hole, Because right? it was adapted and it was the way it was all her life. But the minute she had to open this up and she got better and she had children and, you know, she got <laughs> the mm -hmm. whole thing. You know, we keep up with each other. I've, I've kept con in contact with her. And the body says, oh, you know what? We could have died. We could die. We could die. And the body was traumatized. And so that's her fear. And, and this is something very interesting about trauma. It's like the past stays in our present. There's an and imprint. So the surgery yeah. was gone. It was over. She was fine. She, and she, you know, she's, she's lived happily ever after. But the body says, I don't agree with that. I don't think this is a good idea. I don't like what's mm -hmm. happening. Not really good. I'm in danger. I'm in danger. This is... And that's where things really freeze up. So that's, that was my first clue. Years later, a friend of mine went to see somebody who had a leg who had to be, that had to be amputated. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things that EMDR will, will help with is phantom limb pain. And she called, yes. my friend calls me up and she says, oh, what do I do? And says, well, go to, hospital, go to the hospital and treat her. It says, well, I'm, you know, I'm not real good at this. Anything you do that makes it better is better. So she went. 58 minutes later, the pain was gone because the patient realized her body realized, you know, that that part of her body had been cut off. Removed. She got yeah. the memo. The brain got the memo. Says, mm -hmm. You know what? And so she said goodbye to that, to her leg, to her foot. Says, you know, I really thought that we were going to finish life together, but it's not to be, <laughs> you know, they had to mm -hmm. take it off. Mm -hmm. And she was on four medications <clears throat> for pain. The next day they, pulled it down to two and nobody could understand how her level of pain had gone down so drastically in an hour. She had no more mm. pain because of that. The third day wow. they gave her half a pill and that was that. And it's one of the few things that helps the brain understand what is happening with the body. You know, it's just, it's just, it's a, it's a mechanism that is self-healing. It's, it's, um, it's intuitive. It, the brain just knows how to do it if we can just set up the situation where the brain can heal itself. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. amazing. So well, we'll let's talk so about EMDR then. You just, you just <laughs> a few of the things that you can do with EMDR. Can you just give, her an, give us an overall view of okay. what EMDR is? Yeah. My, first, my first training was in psychodrama and group therapy. And I was always very happy with this. So it, it took a lot to be able to convince me to kind of work in a different way. And I went into EMDR as, you know, my first experience was as a patient. I don't think I would have gone in any other way. 
And I came out of my first session of EMDR so impressed with the results that I said, wow, I got to learn how to do this thing. And it's a, a kind of therapy. It's about 30, 35 years old now. It was discovered and developed as of 1987, 88, now with Dr. Mm -hmm. Francine Shapiro, who passed away last year, unfortunately. And what we do is uh, we kind of imitate what happens to the brain while we sleep. You know how we go through the cycle of sleep? The cycles, and we repeat yes. it several mm -hmm. times. And then when we dream, we have the rapid eye movement sleep. And their eyes move real fast back and forth. Well, when we're doing that while we sleep, we're processing the things that happen to us during the day. And in that crazy way that the brain has of putting things together in, in a very strange way, you know, we dream. So we dream and we process and we put things away and it goes into the old time memory, long-term memory and blah, blah. But if something happens to us that our brain is not able to process, digest, um, metabolize what happened to us during that day, it's kind of like it gets stuck there. And it freezes that part of our, our brain or our, our neurons, so to say, so to speak, you know. And so something that should be processed and go into the long-term memory stays present and it stays present and stays present, mm -hmm. consciously or unconsciously, as we saw in the other case. So what EMDR does is, I'm going to say the very simple way of doing it, you know, we ask a patient to think about a difficult memory, an adverse experience or traumatic or a bad memory, a difficult memory. And your teacher called my attention in front of everybody and humiliated me or, you know, I'll have a lot of them in Brazil. And I peed in my pants when I was five, six, seven years old because the teacher mm -hmm. wouldn't let me go to the bathroom. I have a lot of uh, those when we go to do our practica. And we ask a person to think about it with a protocol so that we can find where it is kind of filed away in the brain. And we think about the image, the visual, you know, and we think about the, we ask the patient to bring up what they think about themselves because trauma, trauma does a lot of things to us. And one of the things it does is make us believe lies about ourselves. Okay. And so we, we ask them to bring up the negative cognition, we call it, but it's the lie that we believe about ourselves, our emotions, our physical sensations. And we can measure these things, you know, with, uh, with a side scale and another thing. We have spe specific scales for that. And then once we ask the person to think about it, then we can apply the visual bilateral movement. We ask them to follow, you know, our eyes, <clears throat> uh, mm -hmm. our fingers with our eyes, or we can do this with light bars and other things, or it can be auditory. This gives the brain like a jump start. It's kind of like it got stuck here. Well, let's kind of give it a push and see if it'll get past that point. And once it does, it will process things by itself. It's not like we have to go hunting for it or I have to think of incredible words of wisdom to be able to, you know, help the patient understand things. No, the brain does it, you know, all by itself. And this is the amazing thing. And that's what makes EMDR not only so efficient, it makes it very fast. It has very fast results and nowadays you know 30 years later we have uh it's recognized by the world health organization as being one of the two therapies efficient to treat trauma wow, and it's good. also recognized by the national registry of evidence-based psychotherapy and practice in the united states <clears throat> so it's a highly scientific uh way of doing though even though it's a very strange way to do psychotherapy it's kind of like yeah, I'm gonna, when, when the, when the, yeah. My, it does, my, my first it's not intuitive, right? It's not intuitive. Yeah. Uh, she says, you're going to tell me that I'm going to think about something, I'm going to wiggle my eyes and I'm going to get well. And she kind of looked at me and says, yeah. And I said, you know what? It's, and, that's the way, and that's the way it is. Yeah. We kind of, yeah. you know, it's a lot more than that. But yeah. we move our eyes and we imitate what happens to us in our sleep. 
And we do the job, we help the brain do the job that it should be doing naturally. Mm -hmm. So you use the resources that our brain already has. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And some people have, you know, more resilience and that's why they've been able to get through many of the things that they went through. You hear some stories of how this person never survived. You know, one person, you know, really invested in their lives. You know, sometimes it was a teacher. You know, sometimes it was a church member or somebody from a temple or a synagogue or something. Uh, sometimes it was, you know, a, a grandmother, a grandfather who lived far mm-hmm. away, but who would write, and, you know, send them things. And sometimes just one person makes that difference and how they were able to, you know, respond in a, in, in a better way. And then other people really have more resources and are able to, you know, develop these things and be able to, you know, treat some, you know, and, and we work with some of the most horrific things, the horrific memories that people have. And one of the nice things about the treatment is that you don't really have to talk about it. And this is, this is a paradigm shift in, in um in therapy, in yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do psychoanalysis and stuff. You know, Breuer and Freud all talked about the talking cure and how, you know, we need to mm-hmm. talk and it'll get things better and how we, you know, we can interpret things and things. But this is done in silence. So much of EMDR treatment is done in silence. And it has the advantage of not having to talk about the details. Sometimes the graphic details, you know, like sexual abuse or certain kinds of humiliation or torture or war, you know, Mm -hmm. rape. Um, People are either very embarrassed to talk about it. Sometimes they can't really put it into words in the beginning because they don't have the words. The words are on on one side of the brain. And the pictures and the memory are in another part of the brain and the two aren't talking. And so they really don't know how to put this together in the beginning. After we've processed it, sometimes I'll say, you know what, now I can tell you what happened. It was like this. It was like that. And we get a narrative. But it's a kind of therapy that does not need to have a whole lot of, you know, verbal speech to be able to, to do it. And sometimes we even treat people without ever knowing all of the details of, you know, what they, mm-hmm. they really need to do, what happened to yeah. them and stuff. Yes, and, and, and uh, you're saying that, and I'm, I'm just thinking here, not only that, but we know that what we used to do in the past, I don't know if it was 60s or the famous exposure therapy, right, yes. for trauma, we know now that it can re-traumatize the patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the things that they you know talk about too, because uh, some some aspects of the exposure therapy, especially like especially with um, CBT, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, and some of it is profitable, but people will not do the homework. They can't stand to keep thinking about it and thinking about it, you know, five six times a day in order to desensitize it. Whereas with EMDR, many times with one session two sessions, three sessions about that particular thing, and it it is done. And so much of this starts in my office, but it finishes, you know, in the next few days while my patients sleep, because they all sleep between one session and another. And Mm -hmm. so many times we weren't able to do it all in one session, and they go home, and they sleep, and when they come back, you know, it was like between a zero and a ten when I left here, it was like a four. Now it doesn't bother me at all. I had a medical doctor who, whose home was burglarized for hours. And there were six people in the home. They threatened to kill him, threatened to take his daughter. It was just one of those, you know, bad stories. And he had such a bad case of PTSD that he had been on medical leave for a year. Wow. And when he came in, you know, we did a double session, you know, two-hour session because I was kind of, you know, this pretty big thing. I don't want to stop in the middle. We started obviously on a scale of zero to 10. It was a 10. It was just so horrific. And when we finished, it was a four. 
And he came back, you know, a week later and we took it up and says, wow, now it's a two. And we finished it off, came down to zero. And a few weeks later, I asked him, so, you know, do you remember that thing about, you know, the, your home getting broken into and blah, blah. He says, yeah, how much does it bother you now? He says, ay, doctora, that's a story for us to tell people in happy hour on Fridays. And I looked at it and says, you know, your job was in jeopardy because of this memory. Yeah. yeah. It's just, just something to tell people, you know, happy hour and stuff like that. So, <laughs> so, yeah, good, good. That's a great, great story. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com. Um, I want to still keep talking about what trauma is because I do think that there's so much misconception misunderstanding about trauma. Let's talk about collective trauma. That's what we are going through right now. When we talk about collective trauma, COVID is it, right? It's bringing much, I'm sure you see this too in your patients, a lot of anxiety, all the uncertainties, all, all the changes of information today one thing is good next day it isn't all the isolation wear your mask don't wear your mask wear your mask wear your mask mask. (laughs) all the stress that you go through people losing jobs i mean i can go on and on and on but september 11 was another collective trauma and that so i let's talk about that a little bit i think there are a lot of things that are very worrisome about this situation first of all because it's global, you know, it's affecting the whole world. I mean, we have never lived in our lifetimes and I can't think of other situations um, where the whole world was affected by something like this and the whole world stopped. You know, look at how many things have come to a grinding halt because of an invisible enemy. Because many times when we talk about wars, you know, we had World War II. Well, everybody knew what was going on, who the enemy was, who the enemy wasn't, and who was on, you know, whose side are you on, and, and do we shoot, and do we not shoot, and the refugee camps, and the Holocaust. And, but now we're facing something we can't see. We have an enemy. We don't know, you know, if, if, if it came in this way, or if it, somebody sneezed, or if, you know, and, and you're beginning to look at people with distrust, you know, yesterday, I saw somebody on TV, says, you know, I go up the elevator, and people are looking at me like, oh, my goodness, you know, the, I even walked into an elevator in a medical building in Brazil, I only, I've, I've been in sheltering in place for, you know, five months in Brazil, I'm just now in Canada, and in quarantine, mm-hmm. <laughs> but coming out of it now, and uh, I went, I, I was in an elevator, and a later came in, came in, and she says, oh, do you mind if I go up the elevator with you? And I thought, wow. this has never happened to me before. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was even, you know, looking at my Facebook and, and I asked, you know, what did you say in the last six months that a year ago would have been incomprehensible? This was one of them. It says, may I go up the elevator with you? And this is a woman asking another, another woman, you know, says, is it okay? Because of the risk of contamination. You know? And we all had our masks on and everything. So we're talking about loss. We're talking about loss in a big scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about mental health professionals. We're talking not just people in the front line who are like the doctors and the nurses and the physiotherapists and the nutritionists who are in the hospital. I was in the hospital with my husband at the very beginning of the pandemic as it began to get organized in the lockdown. 
you know, and I began, and I've worked in a hospital and I looked around and says, mm, I know what's going on. They're getting ready for the big thing. The, the big one is coming. You know, you the big tell. one is coming. Yeah. Because they were transforming the regular rooms into intensive care rooms. And all of a sudden my floor, the cardiac floor, my husband had had a heart problem. And so we were on the cardiac floor and I could see, hmm, this is not good. I walked in and everybody stopped talking. I thought, aha, they're talking about, you know, the measures they need to take yeah, to be able to protect to themselves. Take, yeah. Getting but ready also, for the worst. Yeah. yeah. We're also talking about trauma at another level with the people who clean the hospitals, the janitors, the people who deal with the trash. In Brazil and Latin America, many of our countries, as you well know, we bury people within 24 hours. So we're talking about the grave diggers and we're talking digging graves a hundred a day you know 200 a day and I remember we had a a really bad nightclub fire about seven years ago in a southern city called Santa Maria where 243 young people most of them died almost immediately and it reached a point where the grave diggers were asking for help the taxi drivers it was a small town says we can't deal with this level of death anymore and so we have some of these places you know and we're, and we're doing this kind of like in waves, right? We had the first wave and the second wave. Well, now it's, now it's okay. We're going to go back to normal. People go back to normal, the old normal, and they produce the next wave of it, you know? Yeah. So we talk about transition. When this is over, well, for Brazil, they think they're talking two years for it to be over, even if we have a vaccination. So am I going to stay yes. home for two years, you know, because my, I'm a group, mm-hmm. a risk group? What does mm-hmm. this mean as far as, you know, my work? Well, I'm one of the lucky people. I can work online. <clears throat> I can see my clients online. But what about, you know, the massage therapists who have to do this with their hands? Mm-hmm. Other people, you know, who build the, you know, bricklayers. Uh, how many of us are paying our maids, our governesses and everything like this without having them come to work? You stay home. I'll pay you to stay home. Because we don't want, you know, because it's a social crisis. We're not going to have people who are pulling themselves out of poverty, but many of them have lost their jobs and they're having trouble eating again. I've seen something that I had not seen anymore. People knocking on my door, asking for food, asking for water, asking for clothing. In Brazil. This had Um, stopped. Yeah, yesterday I was talking to this woman who is a great friend of mine and we keep in touch and she used to be my cleaner and she was telling me because you know, I always worry about her because I know she, I mean, she needed to clean houses, you know, to eat. And she was telling me, we ha- I have to go back because I have one or two people who are still paying me, but most of them stopped and I, I need to go. So there isn't and really so an option for many people. If, if you can die if you work and you can die if you don't. Let's talk about, you know, again, talking about trauma and when we think about COVID, there are two things that I want to talk, that I want to, to hear your, your view on it. One is that we know as therapists that the number one healing thing is relationships. We know that. You mentioned in the beginning, right? People that you talk to, and sometimes it's just one person. So relationships are healing. We are collective people. We need connection. We are, our brains are wired to connect. And COVID took that away. Not only took that away, but now connecting is danger, right? And that's the second part I want to hear you about. And that's what the brain does when you have a trauma. It interprets things that are not dangerous as danger. And it stays there. 
That's why you sometimes are hyper vigilant and you're always expecting the worst. You startle easily, things like that. So I, all, I often think about the relationships. As you said, you go into an elevator and people back out, right? They go, you are dangerous to them now. And, and it's not just strangers, strangers. It's no. family members, people you love. I, I see now my, my, my niece, whom I absolutely adore like a daughter, I spent almost three months without seeing her. And now we see each other with masks and I haven't been able to kiss her. And it hurts. Some, we say to each other all the time, I can't believe we can't hug anymore. And you know how Brazilians are. We hug. We <laughs> love hug and we touch. We're very touchy, <laughs> touchy people. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I want to hear your view on that because I think, it's the I think one this thing is that big... worries me the most. Yeah. It worries, worries us all. Like you say, you know, in Latin America and Brazil, we're all very huggy people. And, you know, I can't remember the last time I hugged anybody besides my husband because it's, it's just been him. I might even see my friends far away with our masks and things like that, but we can't touch. So one of these things is happening. Is it, it's sowing distrust. We used to be able to trust people, and now we can't. Now, if we walk in Brazil, you have to walk around with a, with a mask. If you don't, you can be fined, and they're big fines, like four or $500, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we've lost the ability to be able to see the bottom part of our faces. We've gained being able to see in our eyes again. But we, this is the part of the, the face that tells us, is this person smiling? Is she being ironic? Is she angry? So we can't read faces the way we've been taught to do all of our lives from birth. So we've lost that, you know. And I don't know how we're going to regain some of this because I think this is going to be two or three years. It's going to take people a while. People my age, yeah. yeah, people my age, no big deal. I mean, two or three years is nothing. But if you have a three-year-old and all they see are people with masks on, what does this mean? You know, so I think, you know, we have some of those things. And I think there's several things about trauma that trauma does to us that we don't always realize. I think, you, you know, you said very well about being hypervigilant and the danger is all around and we interpret things through the lens of our past traumas. Trauma also keeps us from learning. You know, we oftentimes get kids in school who seem to be doing poorly. Says, no, I was just, you know, I was just dumb. I, I was, I just... It was stupid. I couldn't learn to do things in school. I was just wasn't very smart. And then you start asking, what was going on in school? So, well, that was the year, you know, the year I failed was the year my parents divorced. It was the year that they really fought, you know, a lot in, in the judges and the courts and the custody rights. And my father did this and my mother did that and blah, blah. And then I think, how can you learn math if your brain, if the inner noise what you're trying to digest about what's happening at home, the inner noise is so high. How are you going to learn math? How are you going to learn how to conjugate a verb? You know, it just doesn't go in. So trauma keeps us from learning. And this is a big deal in a society that all of a sudden has totally changed its way of teaching because we were teaching with people and now we're teaching with people through a machine. We, we were looking at the Jetsons the other day, and I thought, wow, I remember when I was in San Diego Saturday morning, we'd watch the Jetsons, and now we're doing this. You know? I used to love it. And now we're it. <laughs> now we're it. Now we're doing this, you know. But except, we're teaching. Asley, except, remember that they had the, um, oh, yes. was a glass the thing bubbles, that would yes. go down, and then when it went up, the woman was, I mean, the hair was done, you had makeup on, the dress. We, have, we still don't have that, unfortunately, but we'll get there. <laughs> 
So now all of a sudden we're teaching children from one day to the next, from one week to the next, from one month to the next, we're teaching in a completely different fashion in things that we really weren't prepared either to teach or to learn that way. I'm not even going to go into, is this, is this good or is this bad? All I'm saying is this is very different. This is very different and it's all of a sudden and some people do well with it. Some people do not because some people really need the relationship in order to learn. So I think that's one of the big deals. Trauma also takes away from us our ability to choose. I want to be able to do differently. I, when, when, when people say that to me or when somebody bullies me or when they say blah, blah, blah to me, I want to be able to respond in a different way and I cannot. And I know what I should say. I know how I should say it. I've practiced but I still can't get it out. That's trauma. When we see behavior that doesn't change, that's locked in, that's frozen in place, my brain knows better, but my body won't respond. Trauma. Let's it's trauma. In. Yeah, let's it is. It's, just, it's, it's, it's there. So we can go f you know, find out where did you learn to do this? How did you learn to do this? What were the experiences? What were the who were the people? that you learned this from, because we learned this in childhood, you know, from our parents, from our school teachers, from the bullies, and we learn how to respond in a way that will help us survive. So we have all of these, you know, survival strategies that help us survive. But, you know, when you're in a swimming pool and you're thrown in and you got to survive, you swim it. however you can. Yeah. But yeah. if you want to do better, then once you're out of danger, what do you do? You go to the school and the professor, the teacher teaches you how to do the crawl mm -hmm. and how to, you know, the, the breathing and the steps and the hands and the feet and coordinate. So people who are traumatized are just flailing in the swimming pool trying to survive all the time. So look at how much energy this takes, you know, how much um, concentration and focus it takes just to survive when there really isn't that much physical danger anymore but the perceived danger continues yeah and, and no wonder the body gets sick right the body gets sick because, because you have the stress hormones. yeah the level of the hormones cortisol everything is just up the roof all the time and yeah. it takes a toll on your physical body as well asley uh we're running out of time and i okay. do the one thing that i always try to do with my podcast and that's my main objective is to give my audience hope so I hope they understand better what trauma is and how it expresses itself in their bodies, their minds, in relationships, in the way that they perceive the world. But I want to give them hope too. So if they do now by listening to you, they go, wow, maybe I do need to look into this. What can they do? I mean, how can we help them? I think there are, we now have trauma specialists. We have people who understand trauma. And that now there, is, uh, there are solutions for this. You know, we don't need to live like this for, forever and ever. We can, we can get better. We have healing for uh, trauma, for PTSD. So many of our other more serious and severe diagnoses are often misdiagnosed. They really are PTSD disguised as other things. But when you go digging, you find the trauma. If you hear the trauma, the rest of the stuff really gets better. So I would really encourage people to, to seek out help. You know, there's EMDR, there's brain spotting, there's CBT, there's lots of different therapies nowadays that can really help people understand trauma. Obviously, I'm partial to EMDR because this is what I do and this is what uh, I teach. And, but there is hope. We don't have to live locked in to these old memories of our brains. We can change this. We can do differently. There are solutions for it. So please, please, please go online, look around, study it, um, mm -hmm. you know, 
put it in the Google, put yeah. people's names in the Google, find out, you know, who, who was a trauma therapist, who was a trauma mm -hmm. recovery specialist close to you. And so many people are doing everything online. So now you can pop, you can choose somebody in India if you want to do therapy nowadays. I know, with tele, yeah, telehealth has, with has telehealth, really we broadened. Can, yeah, because yeah. In, in it's a big thing too, because as you said, not many therapists are specialized in trauma, not many know how to deal with trauma. And sometimes you live in the rural area or a small city and you just can't find them. And they didn't have any choice and now they do. And one of the things I do is I have intensives and there are other therapists like me who do this of two and three days. And so I get one, one client and we work on all of their childhood traumas, as many as we can in one or two days, three days. And so mm -hmm. we get a whole lot of stuff out of the way. And then the brain keeps working while they sleep. So there's a lot of things that can be done nowadays. There's no good reason for people to live stuck in these old ruts and um, ways of doing things. There is hope. Um, they really should look for it. I've written some books. I have some books on, you know, I call it about heal your brain, heal your body. That's the mm -hmm. one that has the story about my friend who had the, um, the who recovered the memory of uh, the surgery. Of the lights. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, yeah I'll um, make sure I have all those links on my notes so that okay. they can find you, your website and everything. Thank you, Wesley, so Thank much. Thank you. Good to have another Brazilian to talk That's to. Very nice. Let's, let's give a Brazilian hug. Oh. <laughs> we do. Virtual, virtual Brazilian virtual hug. Person. I yes. hope we get to see each other in person very soon. I hope so too. You know. uh, maybe I'll come Thank to you Canada. So much. I love Canada, but it has to be summer. There's no yeah, way. Canada. I married a Canadian, so. <laughs> oh my God, I love Canada, but I cannot deal with there. It's too much snow. Too cold for no, me. It's too cold. It's too cold, too long. My, my warm Latin blood does not agree with it. <laughs> Neither does mine. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Ashley. You keep thank safe. You You're going to so stay much. there in Canada? I'm going to stay here for a few months, January, mm -hmm. February, probably, and I may wind up spending part of the year here and part of the year in Brazil. The winters, I go to Brazil because <laughs> I can't deal with the winters either. Mm -hmm. I'm a cancer survivor. I had thyroid cancer six years ago. My thermostat can't stay warm. Oh, and so I'm not staying there for the winter. For you, yeah. yeah. And then, okay, you know. good. Good. Yeah. Good for and you. I'll come back. <laughs> that sounds to me like the best of both worlds. Stay yes, there for I the so. stay there for the summer, and then you go to Brazil. It's summer again. <laughs> it's summer again. <laughs> You're going to be a one one uh, just summer all year long from now on. Good for you. That's all right, good. Ashley. Thank you. Thank Have you a good so day. much. Appreciate it. <laughs> You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com.